is taken John chapter 12, I mean John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. It can be found on page 1111 in the Pew Bibles. John chapter 2, starting from verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, if you do have a, a newsletter, there is an outline of the talk in, on the inside that might help you and it might be a good exercise to take notes. Uh, I remember that at university, if I wasn't taking notes, I would fall asleep. So that's a good way to stay awake, but also to, to reflect on during the week as well. Well, hopefully you've read ahead um, in John and you've been reflecting on this passage this past week. And you can do that in preparation for next week as well when we look at the whole of John chapter 3. Uh, but once again, let's uh, turn uh, to God in prayer, asking that he will help us understand this passage. Almighty Father, we pray that you will be speaking to our hearts, all of our hearts, to help us in our heart of hearts to respond to you as we must in genuine, wholehearted worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you think it is possible at all to fool God? What do you think? Can we fool God at all? Well, for those of us who do know God, we know he's all-knowing, all-powerful. Of course you cannot fool God, not one bit. Only a fool would ever think that you can fool God. But I wonder whether it is at all possible to not believe that we can fool God, but to live as though we can. We don't believe it, but our lives betray us. Our lives betray what we believe. And so do you think it is at all possible you know, to have the appearance of godliness or the sign and activity of genuine worship of God? You know, Our cars, we might have those stickers of the fish on our car to show to the world, I'm a Christian. Now I'm always very cautious of those stickers because if you have one on your car, you better be on your best behaviour all the time on the road. 
Or we might have Bible verses posted around our homes. We might have a cross somewhere. Or we might even be wearing crosses around our necks. Or our church attendance, where one of those who will never miss a Sunday at church as we meet one another, always gentle and kind and welcoming and nice, always willing to lend a hand on Sunday. But then at home, our actions betray us. At home, the household is in turmoil. The household is in shambles. Relationship is toxic. Husband and wife do not communicate. Kids do not respect their parents. Prayer life, non-existent at home. Of course, on Sunday, we look so different. We care, we love, we pray, we read, we sing, but at home, it's a different story. Unhealthy behavior that brings no honor to God at all. Carelessness with words. Selfishness that's ugly. Or a dark corner of the heart that just harbors bitterness and hatred, unwilling to be softened by the grace of God. I wonder whether that is possible at all. Our Sunday life, so different to our private life at home. Our Sunday life, so different to our Monday life at work. We don't believe we can fool God. Who can? But is it possible at all that we live as though we can? You see, that's what we'll be reflecting on today. It's a story that's meant to grip our hearts and get us to reflect deeply on our own lives. You see, what we see in this story is how even the most religious people, the most diligent in law-keeping, that by their actions, they show that they think that God can be fooled. They, they, they think that God can be fooled into thinking their worship is good and acceptable to God. And so, of course, that should also get us to reflect on our own lives. I mean, is my worship and honour and love of God genuine? Is it for real? Or do I think I can fool God by how I live? So let's have a look at this passage. Do keep it open. We'll work our way through it. What we learn at the beginning of this passage is that it was the Passover, the Passover festival, which was an annual festival where all the Jews from around the Middle East, the Mediterranean, they would have to go to Jerusalem to the temple. If you wanted to worship God, there was only one place you could do that in the entire world, and that was Jerusalem at the temple of God. And so during this festival, all the Jews from around the Mediterranean would come to the temple and offer their sacrifices to worship God. But then Jesus, he goes along as well. And look at, look at verse 14. What did he see? In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, why were all those things happening at the temple of God? Well, it was really to provide a service, a service to all the Jews who were coming from all around the Mediterranean. They couldn't be bringing their own cattle and sheep and doves on the carriages or horse or ships or boats. They went to Jerusalem and the service was there. Just buy your animal and offer your sacrifice at the same place. It was easy and convenient. That's why the market was there. And the Jewish men, all over 20 years of age, they had to, at this time, also pay their temple tax. And because they came from all around the Roman Empire, from Ephesus and Galatia and Rome, 
they all had different currencies. And so they had to go there, exchange it to the local currency or the currency accepted by the Jewish authorities, which was Tyrian coins, which had a high level of a silver, high purity of silver. That's why you had the money exchanges there as well. And so when you look at that story, it looks like this just makes sense. It was a bustling market at the temple, but it made perfect sense. People wanted to worship God, and the service was there to allow them to worship God. You can change your money here. You can buy your animals here. It is easy and convenient. So what was the problem? Well, Jesus certainly saw it as a problem. Look at, look at verse 15. We see here that he made a whip, drove out all the animals, and overturned the tables. I mean, if anything, Jesus was displaying anger. Now, I suspect some of us might have a problem with this, or at the very least be surprised by this. I thought Jesus was meant to be meek and mild, nice and gentle and kind and loving, but here he is angry. And so why anger? Well, remember what we've been learning in the Gospel of John so far. He is the Word of God become flesh, and so to see Jesus is to see God. To hear Jesus is to hear God. And so what we're seeing here is not so much only Jesus being angry, but God himself is angry. And so what was that? What did it take to get God angry? Well, what was happening was that they were making a fool out of God. They would bring great dishonor to God. The temple, which was meant to be so sacred, a place where God would meet and dwell with his people, where heaven and earth touched, the place that was to reveal God's glory to the entire world, to the Gentile world. During the time of Solomon, the first temple, the Queen of Sheba came, visited Solomon, saw the grandeur and magnificence of the temple, and what did she do? She praised God. That's what it was meant to do. But yet here, they've turned it into a marketplace. Imagine Victoria Market at the temple. There's no honour for God there. And most likely what was happening was that this was happening in the courts of the Gentiles. Here's a, a diagram of what it would have looked like. Here you have the temple right in the centre. But then around the temple, you had the temple gates. And you were only allowed through the temple gates if you were Jewish. And there were different courts for the women, for the Jews, and also for the priest. It, it was hard to get close to God. You wanted to come close to God, you need blood, you need animals, you need sacrifice. But then outside of the temple gates, you had the Gentile courts. That was where the Gentiles were allowed to come to pray, to offer their prayers to God. And so what was happening was they were filling the Gentile courts with this market, with all these animals, what was meant to be a place of solemn dignity and quiet prayers. They've turned it into a noisy place of cattle and sheep bleating and all this ruckus of money changes. Imagine Victoria Market at the temple or Victoria Market inside the foyer of Parliament. So undignified. And so here, Jesus responded in this way with righteous, holy indignation. God is angry. God is angry with what he was seeing. These were his people coming to worship him, but God is angry. I mean, that's hard to believe, but it was happening. 
And so Jesus, verse 16, he says, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? You see, they had all the appearance of worship of God. They were going to the temple. They made their annual pilgrimage. They paid for their animals and sacrificed them. They gave their temple tax. They had all the appearance of genuine worship of God. But yet their worship was so fake. Fake worship offered to God. And just like in our first reading, Psalm 51, what God desires are not sacrifices. Anyone can buy animals. Anyone can offer it to the priest. Anyone can do that. But what God desires is a sacrifice of a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That is a heart of humbleness before God. I am at your mercy, Lord. You see, Jesus is angry because he's saying, you are approaching the God of the universe and you're making a mockery of God with all these animals here. Jesus is saying, you're trying to fool my God in heaven by your appearance of worship? You're kidding yourself. And so you can see the anger of Jesus here is consistent with the severity of their dishonor of God. It is a serious thing to dishonor God. As I reflected on this this past week, it, it was quite sobering just to reflect on that. To reflect on the fact that God does get angry, righteously angry, holy anger. You see, God is not a pushover. You can't treat God like he's dirt. You can't treat God like anything you want. God is God. I mean, how many of the things we see, not in the world, we're not talking about the world outside, but how many things do we see within the church that God will be righteously angry about? I, mean, I reflected on that this week and it, it is sobering. As God sees and looks into our lives individually as a, as a church, are there things that will bring dishonor to God? Are there things that will make God angry at us? And are there things that might even just have the appearance of godliness in how we live, how we relate, just on Sundays, or the sign and activity of worship of God. But inside, our hearts are far from God. Our worship of God is all show and is fake. You see, what God desires is a heart of worship. We all worship something or someone, but there's only one worthy of our worship, and that is God. And what God wants is a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a heart that says, I'm at your mercy. O oh Lord, I'm at your mercy, but I'll remain in your love. And I can't fake that. Now notice here in this story an interesting comment from John the Apostle. Verse 17. He says here, His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now what did he mean by that? Well, you see, the concern of Jesus for the honour of God will eventually lead to him being opposed, rejected, consumed, even die and killed. You see, alignment with God will always mean opposition to the world and it will always mean persecution. If you align with God, you'll be hated by the world. We see this in the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, they were all killed because they had a zeal for God and people didn't like that. 
The apostles of Jesus, all of them, were martyred except John the Apostle. Why? Because of their zeal for God. It consumed them. Or even in our modern history, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan who became principal of Princeton. He was a, a wonderful preacher. He wrote many excellent books. Do you know that he was even fired from his own church? Hard to believe. And why? Because he wanted his members to be of genuine Christian faith. His zeal for God consumed him. Or more recent history, J.I. Packer, the author of the great classic Knowing God, excellent book. J.I. Packer, in 2008, his church and himself, they took a stand against the Anglican Church of Canada. The bishop was ill, all in support of same-sex union and marriage, all in support. He would not. And what, what did that mean for him? Well, the bishop took away his license as an Anglican minister. Can you believe that? This is J.I. Packer. His zeal for God consumed him. And the disciples remembered this about Jesus. His zeal for his father eventually led to his death. Now, place yourself at the story, in the shoes of those at the temple. What would you be thinking at this point? You see this guy, Jesus, he's, he's made a whip, he's sending out all the animals, he's, he's saying, this is my father's house, and overturning the tables, you're seeing all this happening before your eyes. What will you do? What did the authorities do? Well, you would expect them, just arrest him. Arrest him, stop all this ruckus, let the market continue. But instead, what did they do? Perhaps they recognized that there was something unique about this Jesus, what he was saying, what he was doing. And so they asked him a question. Look at verse 18. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? I mean, what right do you have to talk about this temple as your father's house? Who gave you that right? What right do you have to do all you just did? Now, what could Jesus have done at this point? They've asked for a miraculous sign. What could Jesus have done? I mean, Jesus is the Son of God, the Eternal One. He could have done a whole lot of things. He could have performed a whole stack of different miracles. I mean, I, I could imagine this. He could have, instead of making a whip, he could have just clicked his finger and all the animals would just float away into the sky and disappear. I mean, Jesus could have done that. He's got the power to do that. He could have, instead, maybe revealed a bit more of his blazing glory and blinded them all in an instant. He could have done that. He could have struck down one of the high priests and raised him from the dead right there and then. He could have done that, had that power too. But do you think that would have convinced them? And what would that have made of Jesus? He would just be a miracle worker. Someone who would just do what they asked him to do. Uh, tricks just to appease them. I mean, they don't really know their place here. They're speaking to the Son of God. The Word become flesh. You don't make requests of Him. You don't domesticate God by getting Him to do what you want. And so what did Jesus do instead? Well, He did respond. He responded in not a way they expected because He did promise them a sign. They asked for a sign. He promised them a sign. Look at verse 19. He says, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. 
Now, of course, they're thinking, how can you do that? It's impossible. It took 46 years to build this temple. Every stone was between 2 tons and 10 tons. How can you rebuild it in three days? It's totally impossible. But here, we don't need to work out what Jesus meant. We're told, verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, again, why was Jesus speaking about destroying his body? I mean, even last week, it was strange, wasn't it? His mother, Mary, said to him, there's no more wine. And what did Jesus go on thinking about? My time has not yet come. I'm going to die. Here he went straight to the cross. And again, they asked him, show us a sign. He went straight to the cross again, to his death. Why? Well, on one level, he is answering them. They wanted to know, show us a sign to show your authority. Show us by what right do you have to do and say what you did. And Jesus says, well, I will give you the ultimate sign. You want a sign? This will be it. You will one day kill me, but I'll come back to life. I'll come back to life, and that is proof. I am the Son of God. I'm the one I speak of. I'm from God. Kill me, and I'll come back to life. That will be the ultimate sign. But then on another level, what Jesus was doing by calling his body the temple of God was that he was making an earth-shattering claim. It would have hurt their brains to hear this. You see, Jesus was making a claim that I have come to replace this physical temple, this physical temple of sacrifices, of animals, of priesthood. This will become a thing of the past. Jesus is making a claim, the only place you can worship God now is this temple, but one day it won't be this temple anymore because I will replace this temple. No longer a physical place, but a person, which means how do you worship God? You don't go to a place anymore. You don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. In fact, if you do today, there's no temple there. Where do you go? You go to the true temple of God, and that is you go to a person. You go to Jesus. That is the type of claim he's making. It would have hurt their brains. Jesus is saying, I am the temple of God. You want to continue to worship God in heaven? You don't come to this place anymore. You come to me. And remember last week, he's been building the picture already. In chapter 1, Jesus was called the Lamb of God. No longer will you have to offer sacrifices every day. He's going to be the ultimate final sacrifice, but now he makes the other claim, I'm also the temple of God, the place you go to to worship God. And so what that means is that it has implications for us even today. To meet with God, to know God, where do you go? Not a physical place, but a person. You go to Jesus. You want to have intimacy with God? You want to meet with God? You go to Jesus. And that is why... It's always wrong of Christians who speak of any physical building, any church building or grand cathedral as the sanctuary or temple of God. That is wrong. There is no physical temple. There's no physical sacred land anymore because that is a thing of the past. What is sacred is Jesus himself. What is sacred are the people of God gathering in the name of Jesus. No longer a physical place that is to be seen as sacred. I mean, this building, beautiful, magnificent building, 100 years old. 
but it's really just made of bricks and mortar, nice bricks and mortar that's been kept well, but it is not the temple of God. Jesus is saying, I am the temple of God. You want to come to God? You come to me. And so what's sacred is the people gathering in the name of Jesus. And that's why when we worship God, when we pray, how do we end our prayers? We don't pray, dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Bob or in the name of John. It's always in the name of Jesus because he is the sacred place. You come to him to get to God. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. And Jesus will go on making this clearer in chapter 4 of John where he says, true worship is no longer on this mountain or that mountain, but it's in spirit and truth. And so what Jesus was claiming here would have shocked their world big time. This magnificent temple will become useless, completely, utterly useless. You want to worship God in the future? You come to a person. And so Jesus is saying, you're not just making a mess of my father's house. One day your worship of God will have to be through me alone. And it was really only after the death and resurrection of Jesus that his disciples understood and believed that. And so here in this story, even though they had all the appearance of doing all the right things before God, it seemed so true that their worship was genuine. They had sacrifices, they had their temple, but in the end, there's no fooling of God. You can't fool God. Some even, at the end of this passage, claim to believe Jesus. And what do we read? Well, there's no fooling Jesus as well because he sees right into the heart of man. Look at our final verses, 24 and 25. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. You see, there's no fooling Jesus. There's no fooling God. He sees right into our hearts. And so what do you think we are to make of this passage? Well, I think at the very least, we all have to ask ourselves two questions. The first is this. Is my worship of God wholehearted? Not fake, not for show, but wholehearted. The second question is this. Is my worship of God Christ-centered? You see, if our answer is no to any of those questions, then we're just kidding ourselves before God. There's no putting on a show before God at all because he sees everything. There's no fooling God at all because he sees right into our hearts. And so, is our worship individually, as a church, wholehearted, not just a Sunday thing for two hours, wholehearted for our whole life and Christ-centered. You see, it's so easy to have the appearance of being a Christian. I just rock up to church and I look like a Christian already. To have the appearance of being a Christian, but are we genuinely Christian in our heart of hearts? Do we follow Christ as his disciple? Not the appearance of godliness. It's easy to, to present ourselves as a godly man or woman. It's in fact quite easy to do that just on Sunday. Just be kind and nice and welcome each other and you'll look godly. But is it true? Is it genuinely godly? Not the appearance of holiness, but genuinely holy. You see that my life, my whole life, not just on Sunday for two hours, my whole life set apart for God. Our private life, our public life, there should be no distinction. All in the worship of God.
Now, one of the most chilling passages as I was reflecting on this, and I still find this passage frightening, is a passage that comes from the lips of Jesus himself. He makes this point in Matthew 7. He points this out and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I mean, isn't that the appearance of a heart that knows God, but is in fact a heart that is so far from God? And wouldn't that be so tragic? I mean, this church has been going on for over 130 years, and many people have come through these doors. But wouldn't it be so tragic for those of us here now, for any one of us to hear those words from Jesus one day? away from me. You went to church, you went to St. Stephen's, I knew that. You went to our growth groups, you helped out with our creation and Sunday, I know that. But away from me, you evildoer. I mean, they will be terrifying last words to hear. Terrifying. And so this passage gets us to reflect on our heart of hearts. Is my worship of God wholehearted? Is it Christ-centered? I found this quote from Toza, who was an American pastor. And I found this helpful. He said, Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. It's so easy today in our society, in our city, where we're just shaped by culture. We blend in and it looks no different to be a Christian. Where it is so hard to see the difference between the Christian and the world, we're just as self-indulgent just as materialistic, just as worldly, just as self-seeking. I wonder, I've wondered this and I've shared this in the past, if a fellow brother or sister, a fellow Christian from the refugee camp of Ethiopia would come and visit us and live with us, stayed in our homes, visit our church and our services, our ministries, what they would say. Would they think, you're no different from the world around you? Or would they say, I can see that your worship of God is wholehearted and Christ-centered. You are indeed different. You have a zeal for your Father, and I know it will consume you. I wonder what they would say. Are we no different, just as self-indulgent, just as materialistic? Or do we see that there should be a concern for the honor of God? There should be, shouldn't there? Our genuine concern for the honour of God. That's why I still can't believe it baffles me that there are churches, Christian churches, denominations that would go with culture and society and affirm same-sex marriage. It's okay and legitimate in God's eyes. I mean, that's one thing that would make God angry. Or where is our concern for the holiness of God? You see, it's never right for Christians to not seek to be pure in all things, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds? Where is our concern for a life that is shaped by the cross? You see, it's never right for Christians to continue to hold grudges, to not learn to live at peace because of the cross. God no longer holds a grudge against us. Do we not understand that? 
and say, is it at all possible to not believe that we can fool God, but live as though we can? I think it's possible, but I pray that it is none of us, that our fellowship each Sunday, that our fellowship with each other every day, that our care and our concern for each other, that our love for those who are different, that our concern for godliness and holiness, our longing to see God honoured, that our private life at home with our families, that our life in public with our colleagues and friends, all our services done in the Lord, the cross we continue to bear, that all of that is not fake but genuine and overflows from a heart that wholeheartedly worships God in Christ. Nothing to hide and nothing fake. That is my prayer for all of us. That one day none of us will ever hear those terrifying words from Jesus, away from me, you evildoer. Now, of course, this is not saying that we have to be perfect. There is no way we can be perfect. But what it means is that we must be genuine with God, with each other. And that's why our worship must always be Christ-centred. Christ at the centre of all things. For who else can cleanse me and bring me to God except from Christ? Who else can take away my sins and make me acceptable to God except Christ? Who else can claim to be the temple of God, the place I must go to meet with God? Who else but Christ? Who else can be my saviour and grant me access to God and his heavenly kingdom? Who else but Christ? Our worship must be Christ-centred from beginning to end. And just like that wonderful hymn we sung before, we are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. You know those words. Prone to leave the God we love. And when that happens, what do we do? We come back to Christ always and we say, well, here's my heart, Lord. Take it and seal it. Seal it for the realms above. Take my heart. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. And so us as a church, let our worship be real, deep, genuine, wholehearted and Christ-centered always. Amen. Let's pray.